Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I am Jeremy Goldcorn, hosting solo today because Kaiser was caught up in some work commitments. Um, our guest today is uh, kind of a colleague of mine because I'm an affiliate of the Australian Centre on China in the World uh, at Australian National University. And Luigi Tomba is a senior fellow at the Australian Centre on, China, uh, on China in the World. Um, he is uh, self-described in our uh, chat before the recording as an undisciplined political scientist. He's the author of Paradoxes of La Labor Reform, Chinese Labor Theory and Practice from Socialism to Market. He is co-editor of the China Journal and most recently is author of The Government Next Door, Neighborhood Politics in Urban China, a book that uh, looks at a, a fascinating topic uh, which uh, we've talked about as real estate really here before uh, on the podcast, but we're going to be looking at it uh, today from a slightly different angle. Welcome to Seneca, Luigi. Thank you, Jeremy. It's nice to see you in Beijing finally. It is lovely. We, we usually meet in Canberra. Um, so the government next door, um, let's uh, start with uh, a quote from Deborah Davis of Yale University. Luigi Tomba is the first to sy systematically demonstrate how the property revolution in China has strengthened rather than weakened the regime's legitimacy and its ability to govern at the grassroots. Um, Luigi, that's a kind of, a, I mean, those are good words of praise and uh, you know, an entry into a fascinating subject can we start with your methodology? What, how, how did you do your research for this book? Um, this, is a, this is a book that started a long time ago. Uh, my first uh, visit to some of the Beijing, what I, at that time I was calling middle-class neighborhoods, uh, was in 2002. So it's, it's over 10 years in the making, if you consider that it takes always a couple of years to, to finish it up with the publisher. Um, and uh, the idea of this was uh, really to go and look for middle-class areas around, around different cities in China, and in, in this case I'm talking about Beijing, Chengdu and Shenyang, and uh, try to find out uh, not only who they are, but also how they live and how they got there, how they got to become middle class. And I think, uh, and so the way that I did it was basically going into these neighborhoods and trying to live there and uh, try to understand uh, the lives of the individuals that were becoming my neighbors at that time. And uh, after the first visit to Beijing, I also realized the neighborhoods themselves are sites of politics, very intensive uh, sites of politics and sites of government in particular in, in China. And um, so I thought that maybe that politics and that form of government can be different in areas that are not middle class. And this is why I decided to extend, uh, expand my interest to other areas, in particular going to Shenyang, where I actually worked in uh, uh, old uh, uh, working-class neighborhoods where a lot of the um, um, old working class, the socialist working class of the 1950s and 60s was still leaving despite uh, all the factors being closed. And what I found was uh, a very different way of life but also a very different form of government somehow. Can we go back a little bit to sort of um, before reform and op opening up, I, I guess? And so, I mean, the primary unit of social organization before reform and opening up was, in fact, the Dunway, the work unit, right? So that's, I mean, your book documents the new thing that has basically replaced that. Is it, would, I, would that be correct to say? Um, Dunway have stopped uh, much of their function in terms of administration of the population. Um, what has 
changed is that new, the new cities, the cities that emerged after the 1980s and in the 1990s and today, they don't have those organizations to uh, administer the population. And so the government had to recur to uh, new forms of organization. And in this case, in, in many cities, those forms of organization became territorial forms of organization. So neighborhood-based organization that or communities. Maybe we can start then with looking at the, the what you've described as middle class. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, first of all, you know, w- what's the definition of middle class? Um, and then after we have the, that tricky definition, um, you know, can you give us a big picture of you know, where are they living and how is the government using uh, their residence area, their community, their gated compound to govern? Uh, my understanding of the middle class has always been that part of the urban population that found itself in an upward social mobility trajectory, in a trajectory of upward social mobility at a specific uh, point in time, in particular uh, towards the end of the 1980s and then during the 1990s and the 2000s, as a result of uh, the changing, of the structural change that we were talking about before, of uh, the move away from the dependency on the work unit. But then what I also, what I also got to uh, was the way in which the idea or the word middle class started to be used in particular by the government to define the most loyal or the most uh, reliable uh, part of the population, that part of the population that slowly uh, had become part of the project of a new and more uh, resourceful and wealthy China. Rich so, enough to, to be in favor of the status quo, essentially. Yes, and, and one of the, the things, you know, what I found, and I think this is one of the main things that, that, the, book, that the book finds, is that the government on one side was using the middle class, uh, the idea of the middle class, or the word middle class, or the category of the middle class, uh, to describe uh, citizens that are obtaining advantages, economic advantages through the economic reform, but also citizens that are um, in a way aligned with the Chinese government uh, towards um, a a generalized uh, maintenance of the social order and as a consequence a maintenance of the rule of the the Communist Party itself. Um, the, 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 The government also put in place policies to make sure that the middle class that he was producing, that he was engineering, and this is one of the words you will find in the book, was not a middle class that was necessarily, uh, that was similar to the ones we've seen in other countries in Asia that wanted change, wanted political change, wanted autonomy, wanted uh, uh, participation, but rather a middle class that was very much in favor of advancing its own interests within uh, the, uh, or aligned to the interest of the of the Chinese regime. So how, how did that play out in, in real estate? Well, that played out exactly in terms of uh, the property politics that, that was uh, uh, put in place from the, 19, from the end of the 1980s, but in particular from the 1990s. Well, let me just give you an example uh, of, a, of an, idea fam- an ideal family. The ideal family of uh, those who actually got into the real estate boom very early uh, was a family that was originally working in a work unit, in a state work unit, either for, for Impe Gini would be either working for a ministry or for a hospital or for a, for a state-owned enterprise. And towards the end of the 1980s was allowed to purchase the apartment where 
they have been living for all their life. That um, that was called Dunway Funfang at that time, right? Yeah. The so Dunway, they gave you a, basically a, a cheap price on an apartment that they used to own. Yes, so they transferred the ownership. Uh, until, until yeah. 19, uh, from 1988, around 1988, work units were um, allowed to, from 1988, they were allowed to sell uh, the apartments uh, to the people who were living in, to the, to right. the residents who were living in those apartments. Uh, and that in itself, many people at that time didn't really think about buying the apartment. They didn't want to spend money on something that they had for cheap or that they had uh, basically for free already. Uh, they didn't realize that that initial purchase of that apartment would put them in a, in a very good position when the, real, when the real estate boom starts in the mid-90s. In the 1980s and in the early 1990s, there was no credit market. There was no real private real estate. Uh, but from the mid-90s, uh, there was initially more demand for, for, you know, for greater, for larger apartments. But also there was a push from the local governments, from the city governments to uh, build, to build much more. And so the ones who were then uh, in the best position to buy those first commercial apartments, those champignons in the... Uh, in the 1990s, where those who already have some capital, some real estate capital that they had obtained at a very cheap price from the work unit. They found themselves with something to rent out or something to use as a collateral uh, to apply for a, for a mortgage. And also they uh, were capable of taking advantage of some of the um, uh, subsidized uh, apartments that the, the uh, that were sort of a joint venture between real estate companies and, and the local state. And so they were able to buy commercial apartments at very cheap prices. They, at, the, at the time, but still today, uh, some of these houses are called economy housing. So the Jinji Shiyongfan at that time uh, were supposedly only for people who were resident in the cities that were uh, under a certain level of uh, uh, income. Uh, and didn't have any any other apartment. Now, many of the people who actually bought those those apartments were people who managed to get around those uh, uh, those regulations, especially because those in that condition wouldn't have had money to buy those apartments in the first place. Right. Um, so, as you can see, I mean, the, this initial advantage that people started to have through the redistribution of the uh, uh, Dunway uh, housing. Uh, became a much greater advantage when the real estate boom started in the second half of the 1990s. And, uh, and somehow those people were people who worked in, in work units, were people very much close to the state. So you find yourself with this first generation of what I call the middle class, but basically is a, some sort of property, uh, property class, if you want, and, and in fact... Uh, uh, in, in some cases it is called fan chan um, that, uh, that that becomes uh, not really more, not not really wealthier, but definitely in possession of very uh, of very significant assets like housing, and we know how much the price of housing has gone up from that time, and so the advantages have continued to accumulate for those families from uh, basically the mid nineties until today. Right, yeah. and then uh, in t in terms of the, the the way the housing looks, and uh, you know the the bigger th the theme of your book. Um, so, what kind of housing are these people living in? Um, well, the first uh, the first neighbourhoods that I've uh, looked at in in Beijing, there were 
uh, outside of the uh, third uh, of the fourth ring road um, on, the, on the northeast side. I won't mention what the neighborhoods were, but you know, the, around uh, the Lido Hotel, <laughs> that area. <laughs> let's, let's, let's not let's not mention which one. They are. But you know, that's, that's the part of it. Okay. That's that's the kind of description that I give in the book. I'm mm. assuming that many people will understand which part of the town I'm talking mm. about. Um, I lived there <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the mid to late 90s. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But we who didn't have expat packages were condemned to that ghetto, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> um, but, but those, the end of the ni- at the end of the 90s, those was the fir- were the first areas that were sort of associated with uh, middle class living, if you want. There were gardens. They were gated. Uh, there were um, gated communities, very, very large, with six, 7,000 uh, families living. So you've got know. like you've got a huge compound, twenty buildings or something. Even more sometimes. Skyscrapers or yes, at least very large very, buildings. Yeah, twenty yeah. to thirty stories, mm. uh, uh, tall enough to have elevators, which, mm. as we know, is, <laughs> is above six floors. It has yeah. to be over six floors, yeah. um, and um, and they had gardens, etc. And and they were all gated, and somehow they were privately managed. They had management company. They still they still do. I mean, a lot of the gated compounds that we have in the city that have been built ever since, uh, they all have uh, uh, gates and they have guards. And at that time, uh, towards the beginning of the two thousands, for example, uh, the Beijing government was almost forcing uh, the um, um, private compounds to have guards and to have walls or gates around their areas. There were actual policies saying there were actual policies you must, if you have a comp- you must have a guard, yeah, right? Requiring the, um, um, you know, the, the these neighborhoods to be gated in a way, mm. and this also became uh, one of the um, um, architectural. Models, if you want, if you look around at what has been built in terms of residential compounds ever since, you will find that the idea of a, of a gated compound is very much uh, is very much there. It's a very different type of gated community. I mean, you come from South Africa. And you, there are different types of gated communities in yeah, South yeah. Africa that are. We we have them to keep the criminals out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that, that was one of the that was one of the reasons that one of the reasoning of the right. local government, you know, keeping. Maybe not really the criminals, but keeping the the disorder out mm. of these areas. Mm. And there was something that also was used by real estate uh, uh, real estate companies to sell this places. because the new middle class actually want the riffraff to be to kept be, out. Yeah, yeah, wanted to be mm. you know to be distinguished. We wanted to be to live in areas that were not affected by some of the some of the evils of the growing uh, large cities. So mm. the idea of security, the idea of having better services, even the idea of having schools, for example, within your neighborhood, mm. the idea of having a certain level of uh, 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 services provided by, um, uh, by management company were, were very important. And that was also one of the reasons why there were so many conflicts at the time, because management companies were generally owned by real estate developers and uh, were doing the interest of the developer more than the interest of the um, of the of the residents and uh, ever since we know that Beijing's uh, gated community Beijing's neighborhoods have been experiencing thousands of conflicts between uh, neighbors and their management company or their developers so in a way this this was creating exactly what people were expecting to be um, um, like a like a, a gym for you know the training of a new middle class that was more proactive, more inclined to protect its own interests, and more inclined to become more participatory, more you know, to participate more in the protection of their own interests. Um, 
so that that was that was the situation uh, at that at that stage, and in a way, those first neighborhoods also became uh, um, examples for what happened later on. I mean, Beijing was really uh, filled, uh, also any any other city, Chengdu as well, and even Shenyan, which is has a very different tradition um, in terms of its urban population, was filled with this type of. Uh, this type of gated communities. And one of the things that I'm saying in the book is that uh, having these gated spaces is also symbolically a way to, uh, to both uh, increase the autonomy of the individuals who live inside, who are allowed in a way to uh, manage themselves, who are allowed to um, um, act to protect their own interests, um, but also on the other side to limit the the, uh, the reach of that autonomy to the actual localized interest within those places. So, to give you one example, uh, in in one neighborhood, there were demonstrations, continuous demonstration within the compound to protest against the developer. At a certain point, a few people decided to get out of that compound, and then suddenly the police intervened. Whereas, in while they were protesting within the compound there was no intervention by the police right uh, that I, that seems very typical to me i mean i've seen so many times banners inside a real estate compound saying you know sometimes it's from actual construction workers but more often from the residents <laughs> and that's a you know one of the rare forms of dissent that does seem to be public dissent that does seem to be tolerated but you've got to do it inside the compound yeah well yeah. If, if if you think about it it's symbolically quite uh uh, telling, I think, also about the political system in this country. Mm. Uh, in, there are certain areas where your autonomy is, you know, your autonomy is relatively uh, large. So mm. you have you have autonomy. You can do things. You can protect your interests. If those interests, especially if those interests are somehow um, protected by a contract, for example. Mm. Uh, but then every time that this kind of disturbance or this kind of um, autonomy uh, clashes with the possibility of uh, disturbances in society, then that's when uh, your autonomy stops. And uh, and I think there is there is uh, there's some sim- there's a symbolism in the way that the cities in China have been rebuilt through these communities, because they've they have some sort of cellular structure. I don't I don't really want to use that symbolism too much, but in a way, the whole autonomy that this new middle class seem to have is also very cellular is very contained and constrained. And, uh, and so you can have uh, thousands of conflicts, but none of this conflict is actually uh, challenging uh, right. the system of government per se. It's, yeah. uh, it, it is producing change, and I'm, yeah. not, I'm not denying that. It's definitely producing change in behavior. It's producing change in the ways in which uh, uh, people see the government as well. But there is no direct uh, systemic challenge for that. It's, it's a little bit like, say, in Beijing, the 798 Art District, which is really the only sort of, you know, art district that the government sort of encourages in a way. But it's really nice for them because it's all inside one big gated compound. They're mm-hmm. two gates. Mm-hmm. So anything, any naughty go- things go on in there, you can just shut both gates and it's contained. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, this... this um, sort of paradigm in a way can be extended to a number of other areas. I mean, if you think about the whole 
idea of social conflicts. There was a, an interesting book by Chen Xi on uh, um, contentious authoritarianism, that's what he's called, he calls it, um, where he says, well, conflicts actually do help authoritarianism as long as they remain contained and remain uh, organized along, along certain, certain types of interests. And, uh, and very much local. And very much yeah. local. And uh, so, you know, uh, all, all the talks about... Uh, thousands and thousands of conflicts and, and, and collective conflicts happening uh, across the country, somehow one day leading to the collapse of this government, can be somehow challenged uh, if one sees it from that perspective, because the capacity of this government has been not, not, much, not as much uh, the capacity of someone who can control the, the localities, but rather uh, the one that can keep the localities, the, the conflicts in the locality to the locality rather than making them emerge as, as systemic challenges. So, I challenges. mean, if you go back to your cell metaphor, uh, you know, if, if, if these units are all cells, the cell itself might get disease and die, but it's not cancer, so it's not going to metastasize, it's not going <laughs> to spread. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, if, if you look at the, at the history of how uh, civil societies as organized itself in China. You see that uh, there are certain areas, uh, certain areas and certain localities maybe where certain conflicts can emerge or certain organizations can emerge. But every time that uh, the, um, you know, different groups with similar interests try to coalesce across the country or across different uh, groups, and it has been the case for homeowners uh, in Beijing, but also across the country, then the government intervenes to, to limit their capacity to do so. Right. Um, it's the nature of the corporatist system. I mean, the corporatist system only allows representation of interest by one organization. So that's why we only have one national trade union, uh, and we don't have autonomous trade unions, because that would course limit the capacity of the national trade union to represent the interest mm. of a specific of a specific uh, um, group in this case uh, workers so um, allowing these organizations to grow is the one thing that the government will do and this is in in the book I call this um, uh, you know the, the the containment of conflicts and you know, the, the, this, this proliferation of conflicts that remain contained to a certain, to a certain level mm. of, uh, of challenge, but not a systemic one. Um, and, uh, I mean, one of the themes of the book is, is uh, I suppose you could summarize the, the privatization of certain roles of the government, uh, allowing real estate companies to take over some parts of what used to be the government's job. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, Yes, it's um, uh, it, this this process. I mean, the, we we started by talking about how uh, the downway role as administrators of the population was taken over by uh, in, in certain parts of the country by in certain parts of the cities um, by other organisations that were territorial, like the communities mm. and the community offices, and you know what used to be the you know the, not not just the Jiao Ban Shichu, but also the the Jiuhui, the Jiuminwei and Hui, the neighbourhood committee, the neighbourhood yeah. committees that then was you know, turned itself into Shichu, was renamed as Shichu, sometimes mm. uh, larger organisations, but for all of the private uh, compounds. The Jiuhui has very little meaning. Uh, most people living in private compounds have no idea even where the Jiuhui office is. Mm. Um, and uh, 
This is simply because, well, first of all, because they're not dependent on the government. You know, they probably have uh, jobs that uh, uh, do not require them to receive subsidies from the government, or they have lives that do not require them. They have private insurance, or they mm. have uh, company insurance, etc. So they don't really need uh, the support of the government if they are in private, if they live in private compound and they can afford it. Um, but on the other side, also because some of the main goal, main uh, tasks normally performed by the Jewish way, including Zhan, uh, including, you know, the security, security. the security, uh, or including uh, organizations, sometimes even socialization, sometimes even distribution of, of goods, uh, is taken over by the, uh, by the private, by private companies. In certain cases, uh, there's, um, um, the company actually signs a contract that was something that I found both in Chengdu and in Shenyang. They signed a contract with the uh, uh, local Jiuhui in order to provide some of these services. And one of these services you'd be surprised to learn is uh, um, uh, birth control. Yeah, that's. I really wanted to ask you about that because that seems to me what, that, what an area ripe for all kinds of horrible things to go wrong. A private company in charge of birth <laughs> control in a cu- country that has you know quite it, repressive policies about that. How does that work? It, it is. It is a gray area. I mean, uh, I only found certain cases, mm. but there, there was a, a campaign some time ago. Uh, there was in the mid two thousands. There was a campaign to um, somehow highlight how people who lived in private compound had much more freedom to have a second child. And this was mostly because they, well, there was no control, because the Jiuhui was not actually doing what they could, because they didn't have access to these places. They had, mm. you know, they were kept out by mm. the, by the private guards. Uh, but in some cases, the, the the function need to be performed anyway. But they're performed by a private person who works for the pro- for the management company. Um, this is. Um, this is this is a challenge at, at a different level, at very different levels. Because on one side, it's much easier to bypass them. Um, on the other side, it doesn't really have any of the connection to the actual system of uh, of the birth control, the birth control bureaucracy, if you want. And so it's sometimes even ostracized by the birth control bureaucracy. So it's 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 a very strange way in which the government tries to have some impact on the lifestyles of these people living in these private compounds, but they also know that they cannot violate uh, violate their privacy. You know, they have this, this issue of not being able to violate their privacy. I do believe that the capacity of the system to control, uh, to control, uh, you know, extra birth, you know, the Chaosheng, uh, is, um, is, is still rather significant, even in these compounds. And only the very top-level compounds probably do have, uh, do have the capacity to overcome this type of control. Um, in a way, it's also becoming less necessary because we know that urban population is actually not uh, often going beyond the first child so yeah it's se- it seems i mean with the re- relaxation of the rules in the last couple of years and you keep on seeing these media stories featuring young chinese people who just decide one is enough because yeah. too expensive or too well, much trouble yeah. i mean you know yeah. th- there's also something else to be said about that about that which is uh, the policy in itself doesn't seem to be necessary anymore and one wonders whether the reason why it's still there, even if, if in a more relaxed way, is because there's such a huge bureaucracy attached to the birth control policy that right. getting rid of the policy would 
really mean millions of people losing their jobs it's yeah there's sometimes a bit of an irony in that yeah absolutely so um that uh, let's turn to poorer people then so uh, you know we've been talking about people uh you know the new middle class new rich people living in 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 in, in nice gated compounds essentially um what does it look like on the other side of the tracks um the uh, the other side of the tracks. That's a very interesting expression because one of the one of the uh, neighbourhoods that I investigated was uh, was Tiesi, which is west of the tracks. <laughs> right. the okay, so literally on the other side of the tracks, on the west, on the wrong side of the tracks. And and it's uh, the uh, neighbourhood when it's the area, the district in Shenyang where most of the uh, Soviet-funded uh, factories were established in the 1950s. So it was the real hardcore working Chinese working class socialist working class that was living there so you could have gone to Hainan Island or something for your research and <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Shenyang, no. yeah Shenyang was just too much too good to be true too good to be true black snow it was so attractive as a research field um, but but it, it had a it had a reason it, I mean there was a, a clear reason one is that uh, as I said there's this tradition and hmm. uh, so there was this uh, if you want poverty created by economic restructuring there, but also because in order to overcome that situation, the state relied very heavily on this organization, on this Zhuyuihui, on this Shichu in Shenyang, to the point that it became a bit of a model for the rest of the country. And so just to be clear, so this is, they're, they're relying on the traditional neighborhood organizations yes. or the slightly modernized version of them, that is exactly. the Shichu. That's, right. that's exactly what I'm, what I'm trying to say. So um, I guess the first thing to be said in terms of difference between you know, those sort of um, self-reliant, self-reliant uh, uh, middle-class communities and these communities in Shenyang, in particular in TSC, was that there was much more dependence on the on the government in these places. A lot of people were uh, unemployed, so they, you know, these organisations were very much involved in finding new employment, in providing subsidies, in provide, you know, in maintaining people in their houses even after they had lost their jobs. Uh, providing shelter, of course, providing, you know, so th- there was a, a clear difference in terms of the uh, intervention of the state and the visibility of the state in these places. So whereas on, on the ones in, in that part of Beijing that we just mentioned, we don't mention, um, the state couldn't even get in. In mm. these places, they were very present and very much visible. And this points to also a capacity of the, of the cities and of the uh, government to organize the territories in ways in which the, 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 the governing intervention is actually targeted to the places where it's more necessary, uh, where it's necessary to maintain order. So on one side, we can free up resources and allow private companies to, um, to perform certain functions on our behalf uh, because we rely on, on, a, on, a self, on a reliable middle class. On the other side, we do need to have a very clear uh, daily presence in these neighbourhoods because these are places that could really create very significant uh, disturbances. So um, that that was one of the first observations that I made when I when I went to this place. So it's really not true that the the Chinese government is only ruling from very far away these days. It rules like a neoliberal government in a way. Um, it uh, there is uh, there are 
reasons and places and situations where it's really necessary that a direct intervention happens, and not only in terms of policing, but in particular in terms of support of this, especially for this ailing um, uh, working class that was also requesting the government to do something because it was re their responsibility they were, that they were finally out of, out of work, eventually out of work. Um, so the, in these places, you would find, uh, you know, there would be the traditional working class houses that you would still find somewhere in Beijing. Uh, sometimes in the very, uh, in, in very um, central part of the city, they haven't been, they hadn't been um, uh, chide in a way they hadn't been destroyed yet um, because because of the existence of these humans that couldn't really be moved um, and they maintained uh, some level of uh, a very high level of intervention by the so you had uh, a shirtu office inside these compounds relatively small compounds um, with sometimes 10, 12, 15 uh, employees uh, those employees would also be ex- um, um, state-owned enterprise employees probably who, were, who had somehow uh, managed to get themselves a, a, pu um, a, um, a public job or mm. a, uh, an official position within this, um, uh, these uh, communities. Um, and uh, they would work, they would do most of the work <coughs> at the very local level um, instead of people having to go to the to the street office, which is the higher level district subdistrict uh, uh, subdistrict office, so they were very close to uh, the places where this 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 um, unemployed lived. And uh, in terms of um, disputes, I mean, there must be a lot of disputes in those kind of neighbourhoods too. I mean, wh what are they about? Because they're obviously, I mean, the middle class neighbourhoods. I mean, the disputes are about you know the the deed, the property deed isn't complete. The part there's a parking issue the hot water isn't working i mean isn't that typically the yeah. so and what what are they concerned about what leads to disputes in the working class areas the the disputes are mostly related to to you know to to the conditions of the people to the fact that people see themselves as being disadvantaged so there's a lot of anger in these places hmm. um you have to think that you know they they used to have uh, not only a house provided by the work unit <coughs> but also a work unit itself, and if you go to TSC now, uh, all of those f famous 56, I think it was, uh, projects that were built, they're no longer there. The factories are no longer there. There's mm. uh, almost all of the new factories that have been moved outside of the uh, of uh, the district in, in something called the new TSC. Mm. Uh, but most of the people who work there are migrant workers who work in. Um, in manufacturing, hmm. but all of the traditional uh, heavy industry in, um, uh, uh, factories, heavy factories, um, um, are um, disappeared. So there's no not only people are left without jobs, but also left without the environment where they used to live. And so, for example, they go into parks and they, you know, they spend most of their time they're unemployed, they live on subsidies, and many of them, not all of them, of course, um, and um, you know, they, and they, they complain there. there. There's one area, for example, in one of the parks, where people gather almost every day, and they, they, uh, they criticize the government. You know, mm. they have they have little meetings where they criticize the government. There's always someone <coughs> who criticizes the government. You know, who has a, 
maybe is, have, has a higher education and is able to create new, um, uh, new and more interesting or funnier ways of criticizing or mag mm. or uh, of uh, criticizing the, the so like Dongbei humor basically yes, playing out right. in a park well, with uh, dissatisfied unemployed in former fact, factory in workers. In <laughs> fact, you know, interestingly, uh, the. Uh, uh, you know the the Dongbei Iron Zhuang, which is the, you know the two the two man uh, humor uh, humorous theater in a way um, that you find in all theaters. If you go to any official theater, you will only find uh, Lu Su Iron Zhuang. You will, so you know, the green uh, mm. Iron Zhuang, so the one which is uh, purged of all. Uh, Political jokes and uh, politically sexual, correct sexual, in a Chinese jokes, context. Yeah. Politically correct. So the only place where you will find the uh, the Huangzi is in the parks. The yellow, the yeah, the, 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 yellow, the, yes, the, the the vulgar, obscene. The vulgar, exactly. Yeah. Where you, and you know, and so it will be, uh, it will be performed in that way. So the working class somehow performs their rage in that way. Hmm. But you know, but there are conflicts about a number of things, and especially the distribution of subsidies. Is is a very significant is a very significant thing, and um, there's a, there's a book by um, a Korean anthropologist Cho Mo Yun who has worked in uh, communities in Harbin who have uh, a very similar type of history, uh, where she points out, for example, that some of the rules imposed on on Dibao on the minimum livelihood guarantee subsidy that some of these people receive are uh, made explicitly to prevent people from actually developing. For example, people are not allowed to own a computer uh, because owning a computer means that you have enough money and so you, sh you shouldn't receive a subsidy. But if you don't own a computer, then you will never learn to use a computer. And if you don't learn to use a computer, you will never find a job in an office. And, and you'll so also <laughs> never go on the internet and complain about exactly. how shitty the government is. <laughs> <laughs> That's possibly one of the reasons as well. Um, but I mean, some, some of the limitations, there's, there's, they're very highly, tightly policed because of the presence of these organizations as well. Mm. And so a lot of the conflicts emerge on such small issues like the distribution, uh, distribution of subsidies, for example. Mm. And I mean, what's your sense of, uh, you know, if you had, I, sorry to sort of put it in this kind of slightly vulgar way, but if you had to like make a, the ratio of services to, to stability maintenance mm. <laughs> in, in a working class neighborhood like that, I mean, how much energy do the authorities have to spend on, you know, quashing dissent as compared to providing services? Um, I, th I think they have to spend more time on services, really. Hmm. Um, if they do, then there will be less... Uh, descent less to quash. Less descent <laughs> <Right>. to quash. <laughs> 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 um, it's... Um, uh, look, one of, one of the reasons, one of the, one of the weaknesses of this type of working class is that their complaints are, are almost existential. You know, they have to do with how their life has been. They have to do with how they have been disadvantaged by the, you know, the, the, one, the, the losers in the reform, in the reform uh, um, uh, period. So a lot of it has to do with trying to, you know, there's a lot of rage and a lot of anger because there's very little that can be done and almost everyone is just now relying on the, on the, on the younger generation to do something. Um, and it's a long-term type of disadvantage that, the disadvantage that they feel. So most of the time, differently from the middle class, is focus on very small issues, very much interest-based type of uh, conflicts. These people are angry because of 
because they've been taken away their leading role in society. You have to think of people who are in their 50s, maybe they've worked for the government for 20 years uh, and then lost their jobs and found themselves not equipped to participate in, in to, you know, to go to work for a private company, for example, uh, because they're too old, because they don't have the skills, because n nobody ever told them, uh, and because they don't want to take a job where you know they have no social security, for example. And so they find themselves really angry about them having been kicked out and relying heavily on the government to actually do the right thing, to protect mm -hmm. the remaining entitlements that they have. So there's a, a lot of the anger there is very different from the one you have in, in, in middle class uh, communities where it's much more uh, um, uh, conflicts about, um, I don't know, you know, People may complain about consumption, they may complain about corruption, they may complain, they may have this type of general complaints, but most of the time when they mobilize is because of their own very specific... Their parking places. place has been reduced exactly. by an inch or something. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the problems in the, in the poorer areas then would seem to be more of a threat to the, to the government. Potentially, they are. I think one of the one of the reasons why they they remain uh, they remain a threat is because they're long term. They're very they will not be solved in this generation. This generation, the you know the the ceiling walling, which is was at the time the category that was used, the people between forty and fifty, <coughs> uh, who were um, uh, out of jobs. Uh, incapable or not in a position to find uh, positions elsewhere, to find jobs elsewhere, sometimes not even interested, too old for it. Uh, they will, they will not get back. Many of them will not get back into into working positions, uh, and their weaknesses, I mean their economic situation, will have a significant impact on the capacity of their kids to go to school and you know to study in a way hmm. or to you know to get the right training to do good to have good jobs etc uh, so that was that is something that you know you, s you see the sort of uh, chronic uh, issue that will possibly affect at least two generations to the point that uh, some of these the, the sometimes younger people have to rely on older members of the family for their livelihood members of the family who had actually successfully retired before the company closed mm. and therefore find themselves with a steady income of, of sort. So I think that longer term uh, impact on, the, on at least two generations is the one thing that uh, will continue to attract a significant amount of money from the central government and we know that Dombay has attracted a lot of money from the central government in order to maintain this type of uh, uh, subsidization uh, but also will probably continue to uh, disaffect uh, especially the second generation from uh, from the government right. <coughs> um, are, are there any regional differences that are, are significant to note um, well every city has different policies uh, one of the things about both the real estate market and the and and neighborhoods um, you know neighborhood design or neighborhood politics in a way uh, is that they are controlled by the cities so and cities sometimes have very different interests so there are certain things that can be uh, different based on the, the specific situations of the city. Uh, there are also administratively different cities have tried different things. So you have Shichu having, for example, uh, uh, a much 
greater level of intervention in places like Cheyenne and much less or much more uh, commercialized in places like, like Shanghai. Uh, in Beijing you had uh, much better paid people, for example, that was in particular before the Olympics, that was one of the ways in which they were trying to keep order, uh, order in the communities was by uh, providing much higher salaries. So the salary of someone working in a Shechu in Beijing or in Cheyenne is, you know, I don't I, I, now. I don't know exactly how much more, but certainly a lot can, more can yeah. be a lot more. Um, but certain things uh, also seem to be to remain uh, similar in different cities, uh, and in particular because cities face uh, very similar structural um, um, challenges. Uh, one is land. So every uh, government, every local government, every urban government, city government has the interest to develop uh, its own land in the most profitable way because land fees are the main component of their income. They're very much dependent on land fees and because they're dependent on land fees they will always prefer to have large um, uh, developments and developments that actually add value so they have a certain value. They would prefer to have a um, 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 to have a better quality type of housing infrastructure because they will increase the value of the land as well. As opposed to making as economic opposed, housing for yes, poor people. Exactly. Yeah. So, you mm. know, sometimes they have to because otherwise people will complain. Mm. <laughs> but uh, it will, it will, they will always, you know, they will always tend to prefer uh, developments that will increase the value of the land that they own. Mm. Um, which is also why you know they want to acquire so much land and they want to expand so much because acquiring more land also means uh, having more land to develop and extracting more value out of the land that they uh, that they expropriate from uh, from uh, uh, areas outside and this is something that is is has to do with the fiscal redistribution has to do with the fact that land is so central to the development of every city uh, and um, and 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 the other thing is that every city will have an interest in maintaining order. Uh, and therefore, you know, we find uh, the model of the gated community reorganized, if you want, in different ways, with different styles, with, uh, with uh, sometimes different rules. But in the end, that remains a very significant way of organizing the territory. And we know that uh, modern states uh, like to organize their territory and organizing their territories make them legible, make them visible. And uh, the legibility of the territory is very important for a government that feels insecure. Uh, what do you, uh, can you explain what you mean exactly by that, the legibility of the territory? Well, the, you know, the sta states have, have a problem of uh, making sure that they can govern. And in order to be able to govern, they need to, they need to uh, create, you know, show, make sure that they can see what the territory is all about and they can see what happens in all of this territory. So uh, wh when I'm talking about these gated communities, I'm not just talking about pieces of land. I'm talking about pieces of land with specific types of housing in them and with specific types of people in them. Mm. And so the capacity to know who's living in certain places and whether they are reliable or not reliable or the, whether they can make problems or not make problems remain, is exactly the same problem that they've had uh, earlier on when, you know, when they, they were relying on the dumb way in order to, mm. maintain, to maintain social order. So turning a very complex 
social texture like the one you have these days in Chinese cities into something that is visible and is legible and where you can implement different uh, uh, different form of governance is very important. So in a, a, you have these gated communities where you can you basically know who what kind of person is in there. You know the rules. There's one guy you can go to to enforce something new. In a way, it's but also kind of to, to simplify it. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, we need to simpl- We need to simplify. You know, we always need to find narratives about mm. what we see, and there will never be a smoking gun. There will never be an official in the Beijing government that will tell you this is exactly what we're trying to do. Mm. <laughs> so I, I don't. I don't want to push that uh, line too much. But definitely, you know, there there is a certain image of the city that has appeared mm. to me, and that. Uh, refers to this this new way of governing the city which has developed uh, from the 1990s which is a way where you rely much more heavily on the capacity of individual to govern themselves uh, at, you know, like in the middle class communities rather than necessarily having to control them all the time and making sure that they do the right thing or don't do the wrong thing um uh, we're getting to the end of the the podcast, but final question and kind of a horrible one because I'm asking about the future. Uh, <laughs> but um, so we've had, you know, the the thirty years of reform and opening up are over. Xi Jinping has announced the new normal, which refers to economics to and himself. politics and himself and <laughs> the new, Mr. New Normal, uh, many other things. Uh, I mean, things are clearly different now. You know, the the property market is. I don't think mature is the right word, but, you know, uh, has entered its teenage years, maybe you could say, or at least it's very different now from, you know, even just five years ago. Um, How do you see uh, this changing um, in terms of, you know, your field of research, the way uh, communities are governed, essentially? I think I think the um, there there's a significant change that has happened uh, over the last few years in particular, and it's uh, it, I, the way I see it is also generational change. Um, I I call the people that are um, in the book in a way the protagonist of the book uh, on the middle class side. I call them the first generation of um, um, prop- of the property class, hmm. uh, and in fact, you know they. They became what they are very rapidly, much more rapidly than in any other place. You know, we know that the rate, the rate of um, home ownership in in Beijing has grown very rapidly, from nothing to eighty percent plus. Um, uh, and they, but they also had a very significant impact on the prices that now the next generation is going to pay to get into the housing market. So these people are. Uh, have have had a very significant advantage not only over other parts you know if they were working for the state or close to the state not only over other parts of society but also over their the next generation and the next generation finds itself uh, in in major strife but for two reasons one they don't have that early bird ticket to real estate property that I mentioned at the beginning so they because after 1998 even if you work for the state you will not receive uh, you will not be allowed to buy to cheap property or to have access to um, uh, subsidized housing from your company. Sometimes, sometimes you do, but you know the level of subsidization is much less. Uh, you still have an advantage as a public employee, but you don't have that and such and such a significant advantage. And the second thing is that because real estate has been so important for the first generation, speculation has been rife. Um, 
it's the prices have gone up so much, and in most cases because um, people had access to relatively cheap housing at the beginning, and now those prices are impossible to pay for the new generation. So the new generation finds itself in a position where um, uh, the uh, the opportunities for wealth creation for the middle class are much less in China, and this is also one of the reasons why you see a lot of the savings from of the Chinese going somewhere else, going outside of China, moving out. And those savings are not necessarily only the, only the ones of the very wealthy, but also the ones of the, you know, the, not the lower middle class, but the middle class and the upper middle class. And uh, so, you know, you send your kids to study to Australia or to the US and uh, you investigate whether the markets there are actually more affordable than the ones in Beijing, which yeah. they usually are. Which they usually are because you know, now they, I think, uh, I think I saw the the five uh, least affordable cities in the world for real estate are all in China. Yeah, uh, yeah. and this is you know that's you know based on uh, uh, price versus uh, uh, average income of the population. So clearly, the all of the advantages that people have had during the late nineties <coughs> and early two thousand and say as you were saying, the teenage of the real estate market, uh, seem now to project uh, a very dark uh, uh, shadow on the next generation. And the next generation has to find different ways of uh, creating wealth, which may not necessarily be real estate again, uh, because that's not affordable. The other problem that you have is, you know, is this a bubble? Is this not a bubble? And you're not going to drag me into saying when the bubble is going to burst. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't really know, and I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know how to answer that question. But clearly, there is. Uh, I mean, the prices here seem to be um, seem to be well. Maybe as a final question, I could ask not you to predict about a bubble or an economic prediction, but I mean, in your research and maybe even your trips here after the, the book, the research for the book was complete what's your sense of young chinese people's attitude towards having a house because i mean it's it's very curious i arrived here in 1995 and nobody i knew no chinese person i knew owned a house you just didn't but they were well uh, they were starting to get the dunway funfang so people you know were starting to get that that what we we talked about earlier the work unit would sell them a house at a cheap price um, at the time, I kind of just thought, why would anybody buy real estate in a communist country where you don't own it and, you know, it's a short-term lease. It's a, it's a 70 or 90-year, 99-year lease. And, you know, this just seems like a scam to me. It is, you know, if I, you know, borrowed some money in 1999 and bought some prime real estate in central Beijing, I, you know, could be sitting drinking yeah. pina coladas on <laughs> Malibu Beach. But... Um, and then I, I, I felt almost as though at some point I went and lived in a hutong. And then I came, out, I came out of the hutong in like, I guess, about 2006. And I sometimes felt as though I was Rip Van Winkle. Like I, I, I'd gone in, you know, the, my neighbors in the hutong were poor working class Beijingers who weren't, didn't, you know, really part of the scene. I came out and suddenly if you were in your 20s and you didn't have an apartment and a car, you couldn't get a wife, kind of. That it seemed to happen over the space of, you know, under a decade. Um, and certainly that's been the case up until now. You know, an apartment, your own property is essential for entering anything resembling the middle class. Uh, um, I, I mean, is it likely that that might change? I mean, do you think younger Chinese people could start to see, well, you know, actually having, you know, 
$50,000 in a U.S. bank account is more important? Or is there some other asset class that you think people might start thinking about? Are young people getting less uh, entranced by the, the idea of owning property? Um, look, I, th- I think this is not yet the time when that kind of transition is happening. This is, this is exactly the time when the first transition is happening, where you have uh, where there's so much riding on owning a house that, um, you know, who you will marry, or, you know, even whether people will marry you because marry you because uh, a certain because you have a house in a certain compound and their kids may be able to mingle with certain type of people. Right. You know, the, all those things actually do matter a mm. lot these days to uh, to social interactions and uh, to social mobility, to social advancement, mm. etc. So I see that being the sort of the, the flavor of the moment uh, at this stage. Uh, there's something. The the thing the other thing that is happening is um, is you know if you want the only other uh, good uh, the only other commodity that people will put uh, a similar amount of effort into is education and uh, it seems to me that this is becoming the other big obsession you know the idea of having having an education having an education that is that actually guarantee you a job and not necessarily one overseas where you know. I think, uh, but that would in fact reinforce the the appetite for buying houses, wouldn't that, it? Because your school, if you stay in China, exactly. is very, it's like many countries, it's connected to where you live, right? So yeah, so yeah. that would be that would be one of the ways in which, again, you know, the investing in in the next generation, if you want, is is the thing that is going to to be important uh, and continue to be. And those two items, I think, will will define. Uh, the ways in which people also describe themselves as uh, the leading class or the middle class or you know the upper middle class or whatever. Um, uh, there's, uh, uh, I, I think, un- unless something dramatic happens, like a significant crisis in the real estate market, where people will become much more cautious, would make people much more cautious in terms of buying a house because they see that their parents have suffered from um, you know from the burst to burst in, of the bubble um, unless something like that happened I don't I don't really think that the priorities will change too much right. uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I, I don't really <laughs> I don't really have so really all you douse out there with no house and no car you're basically fucked <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, socially life. in terms of status <laughs> <laughs> okay great on that note let's move on to the final section just you and me today so recommendations do you want to start Luigi what can you recommend for our listeners all right um, something uh, something similar uh, to what I've been saying um, I was thinking that there is um, uh, uh, there, there's, there's a movie now at the moment you know you, you got me you got me uh, in, in a trap here because I can't remember the director but there is <laughs> it's okay there is, it's okay that uh, happens to me uh, every no, week Bing, <laughs> and uh, I'm the supposed dir- to the director is Wan Bin it was a Beijing person you probably know him yeah I know Wan Bin uh, yeah. Wan Bin is a documentarist and uh, and Wan Bin oh that Wan Bin no okay no, oh, okay. no I don't know so that that's one that's probably another one I know, it's the, I know the Zhang Yimou screenwriter Wang Bin different Zhang uh, Yimou and uh, Wan Bin did a, did a documentary that is um, uh, it's a very interesting documentary but maybe a bit challenging as a uh, it's been screened at Melbourne at the Melbourne Film Fest at the Melbourne Festival last year. Um, it's called Tiesi, and uh, so that's 
West of the Tracks, which is exactly about, it's a nine-hour documentary. And, wow. Um, um, and it's, uh, it's, I don't know how to describe it, but somehow it's divided in three parts, and it's, it, it is about this, uh, the closure of this factory. So we went through um, the, um, the factories while they were being closed. There are very long shots on, a, on one of those Shenyang trains. And it's, it's basically a documentation of uh, the transition that people had to go through um, uh, when the factories were closed in, uh, in, in TSC. In and, you know, because we talked about West of the Tracks, I thought I mentioned this. Um, it may be available in China somewhere. I think it's a bit of a... Uh, Perhaps not at the Xinhua bookstore. Uh, Maybe bookstore, not. Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but it's it's a very interesting one, and if you have the patience to watch all nine hours, or even if you want to sort of uh, you know, uh, go fast forward uh, every now and then in parts that. Uh, well, why does he take nine hours? Is it is it because there's a lot of story to tell, or is it because he it's uses panoramic, long, slow scenes? He, he or has, uh, well, he, s- he locates his camera in, in a certain place and sometimes take like 20 minutes of a conversation among workers. Hmm. Or So it's, it's, it doesn't really have a script uh, and there's no narrative at hmm. all. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's pretty deadly as, uh, as, a, as a documentary, but it's extremely, it's extremely interesting. And it's, uh, I think, as depressing as the uh, actual story of the people he, he portrays. Mm. So I thought I'd mention that because uh, I, I actually did enjoy it. And I think it would be if someone is interested in understanding the, in, in, also in understanding the, 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 um, um, the imagery that is the company, the transition of a place like TSE, which is unique in, in China, uh, then this is, this, is a, this is the right place to go. Okay, great. Well, that's inspired me to change my recommendation also to a film and series of photographs by Zhao Liang, who I think is from Dong, Dongbei. He's a filmmaker, fairly well-known, sort of came out of the fine art scene rather than the documentary scene. But the really depressing film and photo series that I'm thinking of is one he did, I think it's in Shenyang, somewhere, somewhere in Dongbei anyway, uh, of a troop of uh, uh, physically uh, disabled uh, acrobats. So these are some uh, blind and deaf people, uh, some people with uh, amputees or missing limbs or, or other physical problems who learnt to do zaji, you know, Chinese acrobatics. Uh, not particularly well, I have to say, but they they became uh, a troop and they managed to get work, um, you know, for example, going to prisons to, to show the prisoners, you know, sort of inspirational, you know, even this guy has only one leg and he can do a handstand, you know, <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> not a handstand, a flick-flack, you know. Um, it was kind of this kind of troop um, and just a sort of portrait of a strange time uh, in the early 2000s, I think, in the same setting that you're talking about, very grim, Dongbei, you know, post-command economy shutdown of, of, of these factories. And it's beautiful in a horrible way. <laughs> okay, great. Luigi, that was, that was really interesting. Um, and, I mean, it's great to talk about, like, real estate and property from this point of view. Uh, because in Beijing, usually, it's another way of looking at things <laughs> it's like how much does it cost per square meters what most people are interested in so thank you very much for coming on the show thank you for having me and we will be back next week with another edition of the Seneca Podcast Podcast